This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Hey gang, Red Hills Rancher here, back with your weekly episode of Ranching Reboot. Today, CK and I have a really cool guest. We're continuing our dairy series. We had some questions in the Ranching Reboot paddock about how do you transition to a grazing dairy? How do you dairy graze with robots? Well, hopefully today's guest with Clan Man Jerseys will be able to answer a few of those questions. Please welcome to the show, Sean Smith. Sean, welcome to the Hi. show. Hi, it's great to be here. So uh, we're wrap, we're trying to wrap our dairy series up. This will be episode five. And when CK and I first started talking about this, we talked about maybe doing one or two. And well, then that rolled to three. And then she dug up uh, dug up last week's guest, Joe Tamondal. And I thought that was a tremendous episode about the dairy grazing yep. apprenticeship. Um, you know, there's definitely a need for that. One of the questions that we got after episode 20 with Dan Ventiker, since he milks with robots, is... How do you transition to grazing with robots if you want to milk? And I really appreciate you uh, stepping up in Ranching Reboot Paddock, our Facebook group, and saying something that, that you'd been doing that. And that's why we wanted to have you on the show to uh, to talk about your transition um, over the last couple of years, going from you know basic going from whatever you were and and getting to a a grazing dairy that's milking with robots. Yeah, yeah, we um, built a new barn about three and a half years ago, and when we built a barn, we made the decision to... Um, Where are you located? Yeah, Sean? maybe I can give a quick, quick just... Uh, <laughs> Forgot that part. Dis- description Sorry. of our farm. Uh, so we are in uh, Minidosa, Manitoba, which is kind of um, the western side of Manitoba. Um, we milk uh, about 55 to 60 cows on a single robot, um, we have 560 acres, and uh, we use that just for forage and pasture production. Um, and we run about uh, 80 young stock and dry cows along with our milking herd on those acres too. Do you own those? Or are they like on a custom graze basis, or? Uh, no, we we own yeah we own all the acres. We don't rent out any at the moment or anything like that. We we buy in some forage every year. Um, just to top us up, but uh, for the most part, we we're converting more and more just over to pasture and buying in more too. Yeah, CK, thanks, thanks for thanks for jumping on the brakes there. I kind of got got ahead of myself. Um, let's talk about your cows. Let's talk sure. about your cows before we get back into the barn. Yeah, so we uh, we're purebred Jersey cows. Um, my grandparents, I think, bought the first ones in the 60s, and uh, now I'm the third generation milking jerseys. Um, we, uh, we do like our genetics. That's another thing that we enjoy is we uh, do uh, like, like to show cows a bit um, as a hobby and then, yeah, breed them um, 
and keep track of their genetics and their families and everything like that. So uh, that is another passion of ours. But we also, you know, the Jersey cow is pretty uh, pretty ideal for grazing. They're they're made for that, and they they can tolerate the heat outside a lot better than some of the bigger breeds. How do they do in the cold up there? They're pretty good. Like um, they grow a lot of hair. They'll grow three inches of hair, and um, oh wow, they probably look super wooly then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they get pretty bushy. Um, yeah. So yeah, like our basically, you know, our, even our calves—they're raised outside in the winter. So when they're little babies, we put jackets on them and stuff. But once they're, uh, you know, two months old, they're—they're they're just their hair and. As long as you keep them sheltered and give them a break from the wind, they, they'll do fine. And so you stay on pasture most of the winter then? Yeah, yeah. Like basically everything about nine months and up uh, is out um, feeding on pasture. And then they have access to a shed that they can come back to. And we, um, some of our younger stock from about nine months to uh, nine months till they're confirmed pregnant, basically they get uh, some supplement, energy supplement too. Um, but yeah, they, they walk out, it's about a quarter mile that they'll walk out to eat, eat and then come back into the shed to stay out of the wind. And then those three dormant months or non-grazing months, what do you do? Do you just supplement feed? Are they still lactating or are they dry? Um, yeah, so we, we milk all year round. So it just depends on the cow, um, Mm -hmm. because we're calving all year round. So yeah, dry cows in the winter. Yeah, they're just out on eating bales on the pasture as well. And then in the summer months, they're just, they're just on pasture. So we we generally are grazing from uh, end of May until, you know, sometime in November, our young stock and dry cows. Our dairy herd is it's a shorter grazing period unless we get a ton of rain and we can keep the quality up. But it's usually more like uh, the end of May till maybe end of September depending on moisture this year might be even shorter because we're really dry. Sounds like it's, it's kind of an ongoing learning experience, how to balance ration through the year to, you know, between your dry cows and your young stock and, and, and making sure they're having enough energy to keep production. Yeah. And, and we, we did learn some things um, just about uh, for our young stock, um, trying to get them bred last fall. We, we had a ton of stockpiled pasture and we were just letting them eat that. And, uh, we couldn't, we weren't having pregnancies. Um, we were having cystic ovaries, um, and we weren't getting heifers pregnant. And, uh, so yeah, between our vet and our nutritionist, we kind of, kind of figured that they probably just didn't have quite enough energy just eating stockpiled stuff. Um, so this fall, we're either going to supplement them with bales or maybe even just start, start feeding them, a bit of extra grain in those later fall months too, to, to try to do that. Okay. So let's, uh, I guess let's, now let's circle back around to where, where I tried to start <laughs> and the new barn. What, uh, so how long have you been milking with robots? Was that the new barn three years ago? Yeah. Three and a half years ago. Yeah. Okay. What were you doing before then? And, and why did you change? Uh, we were in a 44 cow tie stall. So, um, you guys had kind of covered that in some of your earlier dairy episodes, but basically the cows are tied up in a stall and, um, you bring the machine to them, put it on them. Um, and so 
in that system, we would be same thing grazing um, just to get the cows out of the barn because it's a lot reduced workload if your cows are outside. And uh, so we'd graze in the months that we could. And then usually we'd even um, feed bales outside in the fall back in that system to try to keep the cows out as long as possible until freeze up. Um, and then they'd be in the barn all winter standing in the stall, which uh, wasn't, I wasn't ideal for cow comfort and um, foot health. They did all right, but uh, eventually it got to the point where our barn was pretty old and run down and the labor was getting pretty intensive. And so we had to make a decision of what to do. And we decided that um, building a new barn was the route we were going to go. Um, so we built a new barn and it's a, uh, yeah, a single robot on a compost pack. So the cows, uh, instead of like a big straw bed, we actually have a bed made of compost that the cows live on. And, uh, we use shavings in that and then they're manure and urine and cultivate it twice a day to make a compost and the cows sleep on the compost and live on the compost. How often do you, do you change that or do you just take some out and put some in and not ever completely clean it? Typically, it depends on the winter because the winter is when it really builds up, when the moisture builds up in the barn. Um, but typically, we'll clean it out two or three times uh, in a year, and those will be generally like November, January, and then in the spring, we'll clean most of it out again. Okay. So what, uh, so what are you using the compost for? Just putting it in the pile back out on the pasture? Yeah, so we put it uh, put it out beside the barn in long windrows so we can keep turning it and let it keep composting to uh, lower the carbon to nitrogen ratio on it. And, uh, yeah, then we use it as fertilizer, and we also uh, sell it to, to gardeners and people with their lawns and stuff like that. And you don't have any problems with, with moisture building up in that uh, compost pack and getting moisture like uh, mastitis on, on the teats? Well, the, the interesting thing is it gets so hot, the compost, that it actually kills any bacteria that could, could cause those problems. So every time we cultivate it, you're adding oxygen. Yeah. Do you guys take temperatures of it? Like, do you know what the degrees uh, Um. Well, we did when we first started out in the barn just to try to have an idea. Yeah. And I think it was like, I, I think it was like 160 Fahrenheit is what oh, it wow. got up to. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's like it's sometimes it's so hot you wouldn't be able to hold your hand in there, that's for sure. Um, so yeah, and so when we cultivate it, it adds oxygen and buries and any fresh the, manure. That's in the barn, too. Yeah, we no, cultivate right? it. Yeah, we cultivate it in the barn twice a day. Are you ever afraid of spontaneous combustion? Isn't that a thing, too? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's certainly a thing. Uh, we had a barn oh, burn yeah, down once. Hay, in that, right? yeah. yeah, yeah. If your if your green to brown ratio is off by enough, you know, and and there's enough moisture, your compost pile can get awful warm and and combust. I yeah, really no. think it's 160. That's crazy. Yeah, uh, it gets really warm. Well, that I mean, that's hot enough to sterilize your soil life. I mean, we've learned that you know, soil temperatures of 140 degrees will sterilize your soil. So that's it'd right. be good sterile compost without you know a lot of bacteria in it. Then you go put it out on the pile outside, and it's you know the good bacteria and good fungi start to start get back in there. Is that kind of what's going on? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we we probably don't have 
I, I can't remember. We did do a fungal to bacteria ratio on it, and it's it's mm-hmm. probably fairly high bacterial to fungal ratio, just because every time you turn it, you are disturbing those fung fungi. Yeah. But um, but you do see mushrooms growing in it and stuff like that, which is a good sign. So there's there's some there. Interesting. Okay, so let's uh let's go back to the new barn, new barn with the robot. Mm-hmm. So yeah, do you want me to go over just how we how we make grazing work? Yes, the floor is yours, sir. Okay, so um, what we do is uh, with the robot, one of the key things is the visits per day that you can get your cows to come through. So you want your cows to come as many times as possible because in, in general, if you milk your cows twice a day and then switch them to three times a day, you'll get 15% more milk from those cows just by switching them, not changing their ration or anything like that. Just by the more they get milked, the, the more they're going to give. So you want to keep those visits up and at the same time uh, be able to let those cows out on pasture. And so since the cow can only milk one cow every seven minutes, you can't have your whole herd leave for half the day and then come back in because it will take hours for the robot to catch up and you'll, you'll lose those visits per day. So you have to have it that the cows are coming in and out. Um, so what we do is we still feed uh, PMR in the barn in the summertime, but we just cut the dry matter that we're feeding in the barn in half. We cut the grain that we're feeding pretty much in half, and then that way we can have kind of a bit of both. The cows can be in there eating, when it's especially like the peak of the day heat, they're happy to be in there and eating and the robot's busy then, and then we'll let them out twice a day too. So right now, my dad, he's the one who generally does the morning shifts. He'll go down there around 6.30 in the morning, feed out some PMR, cows get up, eat, and then they really start going through the robot because they get up, get active. And then at around 10 o'clock, I'll generally uh, go and give them a new piece of pasture. So we have all our pastures around the barn broken up into small paddocks, which then we strip graze with poly wire. So I'll give them a new piece of pasture and I'll let the whole herd out then. And they'll all come out and they'll graze for an hour and a half, you know, to two hours, depending on how hot it is. And then when they come back into the barn, they can't get back outside unless they go through the robot. I'll close up a gate. They have to go through a robot and that, that keeps them, uh, yeah, keeps them forcing through the robot. Um, and then we'll feed PMR again midday, and then come evening, same thing. I'll give them a new piece of grass, let the whole herd out, and then once they come back in from grazing at night, they have to go through the robot. And then in the evening, they really do, because when it's nice in the evening, they'll just keep cycling through the robot like they just and go up back outside to pasture. So they got lots of, most of grazing's overnight. Interesting. Interesting. So how you're strip grazing. Are you back fencing with lanes or are you just letting them, let them have a bigger area to come back? So you don't have a trumped up lane. Um, no, we do have lanes for, well, we do have some lanes and then, uh, and then sometimes we make temporary lanes. Yeah. Just to, cause like generally, like if we have a, say seven, seven acre strip, our paddock, that if we start on the end closest to the barn every single time, it's going to get overgrazed guaranteed. So sometimes we'll actually just 
make a temporary lane all the way to the far end and start at that end and, and bring it back as we go. And then that way the cows don't overgraze that close piece. That makes sense. That definitely makes sense. So how about how far are they walking? Uh, the barns situated pretty close to the middle of the quarter section. Um, and so then, yeah, like the, their quarter, quarter mile would be, you know, close to the farthest. So that's not really that far. No, no. Like it's, you know, a 10 minute walk for them. Yeah. Yeah. So the change, the change to the robot was because your old barn was falling down. It was mostly a labor need. So how is that? I want to hear some more about what changes you've seen in production since you've been uh, grazing with the robot milking. Um, So we didn't see, we didn't see the huge boost in production that uh, we kind of thought we were going to when we switched to the robot. Um, But every, you do see a change switching from straight PMR to grazing. Um, When we first like switch over in the spring, usually our production stays the same. Like right now we're at 25 kg average, which is, you know, 55 pounds. Um, and it stayed about that, but our butterfat drops because you're, you're putting them on such lush grass that uh, it just goes through them so quick. Right. It, they don't have time to, to process it and get as much butterfat out of it. So we do ship less butterfat in the summer months generally until later in the season, if they're eating a bit more mature stuff, it, it'll bounce back up. Okay. So, now, my next question is, is, uh, is who's your customer? Uh, so, yeah, that's one big difference between um, Canada and the U.S. when it comes to uh, dairy is we have a supply managed system in Canada. So it's a single marketing desk um, system. And so we sell to the board. The board sells to the processors. And uh, so, yeah, like our milk goes to Brandon, uh, which is – about 45 minutes away and it, it's a Dairyland brand. That's their plant, but, but we're selling to the board, not to Dairyland. Okay. So it's not necessarily a direct on farm and it's not a, it's not like an organic or grass fed label. No, no, we can, you can like do those labels still in Canada. Um, it just, it's those, those are more like in the Ontario, Quebec and BC areas where there's more dairies because then they can have a plant just for that, for that milk. Whereas in Manitoba, I think if we, we could go organic and get the premium, but I think it would just get put in with, uh, put in with everyone else's milk. It wouldn't even make a difference just, just cause there's not enough, there's not enough demand because of our population to have a, have a separate plant. Well, it sounds like you guys have completely different food police rules. And yeah. it's like the food yeah. police rules around milk are some of the most ridiculous rules that, that are on the books. So what, uh, I guess on the, what I'm, are on-farm sales allowed in Canada? Can you do that? Yep. Yeah. You just, um, you need a, uh, processor license. Like, uh, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, so then if you were going to say we wanted to like sell our own milk process and sell our own milk or milk products, we would have to get a processor line, a, a license, and then we would still sell to the milk board. And then we just buy that milk straight back. 
and then so it sounds almost pointless. <laughs> well, it's 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 definitely um, makes it complicated. Yeah. For, for for if you're doing stuff like this, but our our milk price is substantially higher than milk prices in the U.S. Like what we get paid at the farm gate because yeah. because it's a supply management system. Like we only produce the amount of milk that Canada needs. We so don't, don't mind it then, right? Yeah, no, we don't. We don't export. We don't hardly import. There's more and more imports coming in now, just as trade deals. You know, got to give up right. something type thing. But uh, for the most part, it's like any milk that you get in Canada was produced in Canada, and we only produce enough for Canada. Well, I mean, I, I I can definitely see the logic. I'm sure that somewhere out there, you know, a globalist is going to go, "Oh no, they need to allow trade. Everybody should have Canada milk." But there's definitely definitely something to be said about making sure you can take care of your own people. Exactly. First. Food security. Yep. yep. Yeah, definitely. And and um, yeah, they're, they're, it is a hot topic. Like any any trade deal. I mean, I know uh, you know different countries. Their their trade negotiators are always trying to. Yeah. Um, I mean, wasn't there some scandal with milk? In Canada, uh, there was recently, yes, about yeah. uh, palm oil in it. Oh, is um, that what it, I don't? That wasn't the one I was thinking, but that's uh, funny. Of course, yeah. I wouldn't say that. Yeah, putting palm uh, oil in milk to raise the fat content. Yeah, you feed it. People will feed it in their ration as a bypass. Oh, uh, the palm oil is because they use slave labor to harvest it? Is that what they use? Yeah, there is some uh, questionable labor ethics in yeah. Indonesia, where, and, and they're bulldozing rainforests in some cases. I shouldn't I say that yeah. as across the board. There's there's some people who are advertised as sustainable palm producers. Yeah. But. <laughs> there's, yeah, there, I think palm oil plantations over the last 10 years as a follow-on effect, the renewable fuel standard in the U.S. has caused more rainforest destruction than anything else. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely. So let's uh, let's talk about you, Sean. Let's talk about you. How, uh, you know, you said you're a third generation there, so you've been there a while. What's, uh, what's your education like, and what made you decide to be a dairyman? Um, yeah, I went to uh, University of Manitoba and got a diploma in agriculture um and then after that i went to australia and new zealand for a year um and got some experience on some dairy farms and a grain farm in australia so that was um that was good and after that i've been at home for uh pretty close to 10 years now been full-time on the farm and um i just always you know always loved my cows that's a, that's really how my passion first started was just absolutely love my cows and um love showing them in 4-H and then moving up into like owning some of my own and and showing them across western canada and occasionally we'll send some down to toronto and um but then yeah as we we've always you know had more of a had more of a i don't know what's the word just a more of a insight into trying to do things more naturally and work with nature. And, um, and so that's, that's part of the reason why we grazed. 
Um, and then my dad went to a holistic management conference, not the course, just a conference. And that really, that really got him thinking like, you know, there's a lot of different things we could do. And I'm not sure, like, I don't even know how, like we, you know, got into the regenerative egg. We were probably doing a lot of stuff before we thought, or we knew what it was, but, uh, but certainly like we've just always thought that, you know, raising animals on pasture is the cheapest way we can do it. And, and that's, you know, that's what we do. And now, now it's just taken on a whole new level. You guys know how it is. Once you get into it, you just want to keep trying everything and pushing everything. It's just like a whole other set of rabbit holes to chase. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that like you didn't, did you ever have a moment like, I don't, I want to kind of do my own thing. I don't want to come back to the day. Um, not, I feel like that's not, common with some other generational operations is they struggle with the kids not wanting to, to take over kind of things. Did I say that right, Brian? Succession. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, and I, and I can see it, you know, I can see where that's an issue. So what was, what was that like for you? Um, well, I'm, I've got three other siblings, so I, I'm mm-hmm. the only one who's come back. Um, okay. my younger sister definitely has interest in it, but she, um, and you know, who knows what that, that might take her or bring her back to the farm someday. Um, but yeah, for me, like it really was like that 4-H experience and getting into like a passion for livestock at a young age just got me so hooked. And like even when I was younger, I hardly ever got off farm summer jobs or anything like that because I just wanted to be on the farm. And when I was in university, I just about dropped out because I'd rather just be out farming type thing and, you know, stuff like that. Like it was just, I just knew that this is what I was going to do. Okay. Um you said that you you said your dad was still around helping on the farm. He got up and did morning chores. Did I remember that correctly? Yeah. So my dad is me and him are the main laborers. Um, so yeah, he's still around. Uh, we're in the process of hiring someone else on right now, just because we um, feel like we got enough work for someone else. But yeah, he he's still involved, heavily involved. So what were the, what were some of the discussions like with your family when you're deciding whether or not to bring the robots in? Um, like, uh, well, the cost is a big thing. They are they're not a cheap thing to have, and they're not uh, a cheap way to produce milk. They're expensive to maintain. Um, but we definitely looked at it as a chance to be a bit more flexible in our lifestyle. Um, and my dad, you know, he had been milking in a tie stall barn his whole life and it had taken its toll on his body. And, you know, so that was something to look at too, was if I'm going to farm my whole life, do I want to? Yeah. And he was pretty open-minded about it. Like, was there a lot of pushback of like, no, let's just do the status quo. No, no, he, he was pretty open-minded about it. He was, yeah. Um, and then the other thing was just uh, it's really hard to find uh, employees, that's good employees that stick around. You can find good employees, right. but usually they end up going on, you know, maxing out on what you can pay them and going and doing something else because they're good. Um, so we just decided that uh, this would probably cut out an employee by having a robot that, you know, never, 
never misses a day or anything like that. It's always here. Uh, did you say what kind of a robot it is? Uh, we're a D Laval okay. robot. I'm not even going to ask the stupid question. How is that different from a Lele? Because you <laughs> might not have ever seen a Lele, and I wouldn't know what you were talking about anyway. Yeah, no, they're, they're, they, uh, they both get the job done. Um, I mean, it's like comparing a Dodge and a Ford, I think. You know, probably just preference. And, and you know, you gotta you also got to take into account where your service is because that's big. You need, you need people who are going to be around to help you when, when pro- things go wrong. I, I can only imagine how big of how much stress it is when your robot goes down. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's bad if it lasts for hours because the cows get pretty upset and pretty uncomfortable. Um, but we're pretty lucky. Like uh, the guys that we work with, they're actually they're quite a ways away from us, so they'd much rather spend two hours with me on Facetime explaining oh, really? how to fix stuff than drive out themselves. <laughs> So yeah. that's pretty. That's pretty nice. I mean, sucks when it's two in the morning and that happens. But it, it you have a backup plan if if you can't get things done in a good time frame. Uh, well, we got an indivi- we got a individual milker. So I guess if we absolutely had to, we that's could your milk- backup plan. Yeah. <laughs> like go get the old bucket. <laughs> yeah. Get the bucket okay. and stool. That wouldn't be very much fun for fifty cows three times a day. <laughs> No, no, it would definitely uh, not be much fun. But they—they're pretty good. Like they—we've uh, never been down for more than a few hours so far. So that's good. Oh, good. That would be my biggest concern: would be spare parts and supply chain availability for that. Because that's—I mean—that's—that's that's a pretty crucial part of your operation right now. Yeah, and everything comes from Sweden or Denmark too. So you, uh, yeah, you. Definitely the supply chain. We haven't had a problem with COVID, but there's some other stuff. I mean, if you're trying to get tractor parts or something from Europe right now, they'll tell you it's a month it's or something like that. everywhere. <laughs> so I, I, I had to look it up while we we're, while we've been here on this interview of where Manitoba was. Cause I wasn't, I just couldn't quite remember where it was. And as it turns out, you're pretty much, you're straight North of North Dakota, correct? Yes. And you're more towards the Montana side than North Dakota side. So what are your winters like? Um, yeah, they're, they're pretty cold. Like we, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head what our frost free days are, but they're, they're fairly short. Cause we uh, actually live up on a, they call it a mountain, but it's really just a hill, but it's enough of a hill that, uh, our frost free days are short. So, um, our growing days. Yeah are shorter and then winter you know winter usually sets in in november you start getting some snow and stuff some generally and uh and you're gonna have snow on the ground till middle of march and yeah it there's definitely going to be guaranteed there's going to be days when it's you know minus 35 fahrenheit or celsius i think it's about the same (laughs) at that temperature so well, so, it uh, doesn't matter at that point, I don't think. Yeah. yeah, so like there's days when it gets when it gets that cold and and so sometimes you feed in the yard like when uh when it gets that cold and it's windy just so the cows don't or the heifers don't have to walk out to the pasture, but but it does get cold. How much snow have you seen cows fight through to get to grass? Um 
that's a good question because we don't generally stockpile and then like graze late late in the year like that but i do it's funny like you can um go out to a pasture and go to set up some bales for them to graze and let them into there and they'll go dig through the snow and eat the grass that's stockpiled in that pasture before they even touch the bales and so i've seen them do that um and and yeah they they they'll dig down and find some green at the bottom and eat it but we don't yeah we don't generally push our cows quite as hard as maybe beef producers do to to forage for snow or through the snow well you've got you've had a different production metric that you got to worry about than than i do i can push them a little harder during the winter but it's you know wintering wintering dairy cows on pasture i can definitely see see some issues even even as far south as i am and it's i think it's really great to talk to you because i mean if you can do it in canada it can be done anywhere yeah yeah like i mean i don't i've never done or i've never talked to enough people who do it where they don't get a good freeze cuz i i'm sure it wouldn't be very much fun doing it in mud um like if you're a place that it's wet but not absolutely frozen solid the ground. So uh, I still think that, you know, once you get your, uh, your soil's water holding capacity and like all those traits built up and lots of root systems in, you probably would benefit or like be able to do it a lot better, even if you're just wet, not necessarily frozen. Yeah, and some of those problems, the more you do it, the, the less it's going to be a problem. Yes. Yeah. So who have been some, some of your good mentors along the line that have helped you out? Um, well, uh, like we don't have, uh, it's coming on like there's some good regenerative, uh, regenerative, you know, people around us. But for the most part, like I, I spend hours a day listening to podcasts or audio books while I'm working. Um, so that certainly helps. Um, we've got, we've got, uh, a guy up in this area, Michael Teeley is his name. And he, um, he was kind of the one who was really, uh, preaching the regen egg to uh, farmers early. And now he, he actually works for understanding egg now and, uh, general mills. And, and so he's still a guy, if I have a more in-depth question, um, I'll go to him and, and he's, he's the one who can either find me the answers or know the answers type thing. Those understanding ag guys are generally pretty sharp. I know several of them. Yeah. And, and they, they also just have a great network that they can, they can tap into if they, even if they don't know that answer, there's so many guys that they know that have been doing it for so long and smart guys. <laughs> like, I, like, you know. Oh. So would you have any advice from where you are on how somebody could transition their, their either freestall or tie stall barn or, or, or however they milk to a more grass-based operation. Um, so like generally I think that, you know, people in order to, you know, kind of dip their toes in the water, I would say start with your young stock, similar to what you guys were talking about with Honey Creek um, is that, you know, your young stock, you're not, you're not pushing for that performance as much cause it doesn't, 
you know, it doesn't show up on your um, milk, milk check. And so there's less risk that way. And, um, and that's probably where I would start. Like there's still a lot of people who, you know, they'll, they'll tell me if they can't pasture their heifers because their heifers get too skinny on pasture. But uh, that's probably because they're tossing them out in one pasture and leaving them there the whole summer and heifers eat it down to nothing and then don't have anything. Whereas us, our, our heifers get way too fat on pasture every year. Like I can't show my heifers at a cattle show or a dairy show because they're so fat. Like, uh, <laughs> Good problem to have. Yeah. Um, so I'd say, yeah, start with your young stock. Um, you know, if you, if you only got one pasture, split that pasture in half and just with a poly wire to start with. And yeah. And, Can like you talk more about how you like approach a pasture when you do grazing? Like what is the basic principles of how, how you would, you would go look at a pasture and decide, you know, I think you said seven, seven acres strips. Yeah, roughly. That's, so what, that's... what factors go in? Um, so with our dairy herd, like with the dairy, you're trying to always hit it while it's in its, or when it's in its vegetative state, the plant. Um, so that means like fast moves and only allowing the cow to take, uh, one bite each time they're, they're in that piece. You're never letting them back for a second bite. So you know, we'll generally go out there, pastures will be 12 to 80, 18 inches, and our pastures are um, grass mixed with uh, different legumes. And, yeah, the cows will take one bite, cut it down to about six inches, and then we just try to keep keep moving them ahead. And sometimes if in the spring when there's big flush, that might mean going out and clipping some pastures to knock them back so that then you can go back in and hit them in a vegetative state with the cows. Um, but then it's, it's short rest periods for our dairy herd. It's only about 40 day, 35, 40 day rest periods because you're going back and hitting them right away to keep them in that vegetative state. So how do you figure out how much area to give them? I guess that would, that would be that that's one of the hard questions that, that people don't often know to ask is, how do you figure out how small of an area you can give them for a duration? Um, that's definitely just experience and an eye for it. Um, Cause you, I just, I generally just go by how much they've ate. Like if they've, if they've ate it down way too short and I can tell they've gone down, gone back and taken second bites on plants and stuff, I'm going to give them a bigger piece, you know, the next, next time. Um, and, and similar Similar, like, um, and that's like the difference between seven and eight acres, right? Yeah, well, so they're, they're like getting these seven, it's a 70 acre um, paddock, but they're probably only getting half an acre each time I give them a break. Okay. These, these 55 cows. So each time I give them a new piece of pasture, yeah, they're just getting like half an acre each time. So 55 cows on a half an acre is about 100,000 pounds an acre per sto- of stock density. And you yeah. move twice a day. Mm-hmm. Okay. I dig it. And uh, it's it's really, we're, well, we're, as we're going more in the regenerative route and trying to figure out how to use less machinery and stuff, where, um, you know, we, we've kind of come to realize that 
if you're hitting them in that vegetative state all the time, you're gonna your alfalfa is gonna eventually start dying out because it it just never puts enough energy into the roots. Um, so some of those pieces, like now, we're we'll give it a full season rest, let the alfalfa grow up, slice some milk vetch grow up and bloom and everything, and then we'll go in in the fall with our bred heifers and dry cows and just mob graze that hopefully stomp more than 50% down. And then the next year it's, you know, you notice a difference that it comes back even better, those pastures. Um, and in, we're doing that instead of, you know, spraying it out, putting it into something else for a couple of years and then going back into pasture. Okay. What, uh, the longer you've been grazing like that, are you noticing increases in production of your ground? Is it, are you getting more forage per acre? Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Like we never, we've never really, um, even done like, uh, you know, taking the dry matter off our pastures. I know some people like, uh, are doing that going out and taking samples and taking dry matter off and stuff. Uh, we don't do that. Um, but I would say that, uh, one thing is it, uh, it'll, the water holding capacity is like something that is like really noticeable um, in those, in those pastures that were hitting really frequently, but for a short amount of time, like the other day I was out there and it, it took uh, over four and a half inches in under 15 minutes, our, our dairy pastures. So it, it's pretty impressive that way. As what's the, com- compare that to something. So we have a frame of reference for it. Um, so our hay fields, which we're, you know, taking cut two cuts of hay off every year and, and hopefully getting cows on there to graze a third cut, they, like, I haven't done one that, you know, for a full hour, but it was like 12 minutes for one inch, our hay fields. And then a second inch was like another 35 minutes. Um, and then like our neighbor, who is annual tillage, we. Uh, canola rotation uh his first inch went in really quick on the top layer that was all tilled Uh, i went in in like three minutes but a second inch sat on the surface for over seven hours so so yeah it's a you you can see the big difference that way when you're when you're comparing even from our pastures to our hayfields and then you know to a neighbor who's full tillage and you're are you no tillage or are you still like minimum tillage uh, we are no-till. We bought uh, we bought a John Deere zero-till drill last last year and bit the bullet on the they're expensive, but we decided that's the route we want to go. Okay. Any problems with weed control? Uh, yes. Um, so one thing we haven't talked about is a lot of our well, not a lot of our forage, but a good chunk of our forage is multi-species cover crops that we just cut for forage. And so we used to um, always have Italian rye and clovers in those. And so we'd usually cut it um, end of July, early August, and then graze the regrowth late in the year. And we used to do that, you know, just every year we'd graze it like October, November type thing. Um, But we've come to realize that uh, without, without like um, doing a fall spray, for years and years in a row that your dandelions can become very, very hard to kill. And then like you, 
for dandelions, it's, you can knock them back slightly in the spring with a spray, but you can't really kill them. So that's something we've come aware of, and, and now we've almost switched to we're not going to graze those pieces unless we can get on there early, like we have a lot of rain, um, just because, yeah, it, the dandelion situation was, was pretty bad. So we'd rather graze pastures late in the year than graze, graze these cover crops. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's sometimes sometimes I think that I just need to put my whole farm into perennials and just manage them better. But uh, but it's I don't know it's hard it's hard to uh, yeah it's hard to do that when you you know can get a lot of tonnage off those cover crops and then and then a new hayfield just produces so much better for those first five years so it's hard to completely switch to that to just perennials but. More and more, we are more of our acres are going into perennials. Do you think you'll need more acres of perennials to to maintain the same number of cows? Um. Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, because we're buying we're buying in alfalfa pretty much every year, anyways. So it's tough to it's tough to say because we're supplementing, like we're not producing everything on our farm. Um, but yeah, I'd say, I'd say probably like, this year will be a good test because we haven't had much rain, but I still think our cover crops are going to produce good. So it'll be a good test to see like how much tonnage we get off of those in comparison to hay stands, which, you know, you would think would use the rain really well because they're already established. So any bit of rain they're going to, they're going to suck up and use, but I think the cover crop is going to produce more this year than our hay stand. So it'll be a good test this year. You mentioned your uh, rain. Are you a little short on rain? Are you in a drought or are you yeah. okay? Yeah, we are in a drought. We got, we got lucky at the start of June. We got a four inch rain in one day, but that's about the only like substantial amount of rain we've got all season, like since spring, everything. So we were really dry going into that, and we got that, and it was nice. It was good for the pastures, nice flush, but we haven't ha- really had anything substantial other than, like, you know, maybe one-tenth or so a couple times. So, uh, so yeah, now it's really dry, like digging down. I was digging a hole to plant a tree today, and, you know, the first four inches is, is pretty dry. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, get, it's getting dry here right now. We, ne- we need to rain pretty bad. Like our area in the last – um, 35 days is under 40% of our annual moisture. So, wow. What, what would be your normal, what is a normal average year besides a random collection of numbers in a setting on a dryer? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't, I, 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 I don't know our annual rain off the top of my head to be honest. So, um, if I was going to guess, I'd say, you know, maybe like, 10 inches of precipitation in the growing season. Like not, not crazy dry, like not North Dakota dry, but, uh, but also not like, you know, Eastern, Eastern Canada, Eastern States wet either. So yeah, not like Georgia or Florida wet. No. There's a lot of irrigation. CK, you're, you're barely with us today. She just moved to Idaho. Oh, well, well. 
I, I can't imagine that. Uh, yeah, we just moved to Idaho, so it might take a couple days to get the get the internet ironed out. <laughs> I think she was asking about irrigation. Is that correct? Um, yeah, we don't have irrigation. There's some places in Manitoba with sandier soil that they grow potatoes that uh, do it. Um, I've certainly certainly looked into it after having really sporadic rains these last few years, and our neighbors seem to be pretty happy to give us every drop of water that falls onto their land. So if we built a dam, we could have we could have irrigation. And um, so I've looked into it. Um, especially for our dairy herd because uh, basically every day we're grazing, we're cutting our feed costs. Um, well, our difference between our feed costs and the uh, kgs of butterfat we lose is 150 bucks more like in our, in our pocket. So, so if you could graze for an extra six weeks a year because you had irrigation, that would, uh, that would add up pretty quick. It um, wouldn't take too many years to pay for that dam. I, I think I just heard on the radio – yesterday that uh, the hay, hay spot prices were around like 250 for high 250 to 300 per ton for high quality alfalfa and even like just basic grass hay grass prairie hay was still you know in the 150 dollar a ton range so and a ton of hay for reference you know that's i figure that at 40 cow days okay yeah. a bale of hay is 40 cow days so you know, that $150 is going to feed 40 cows for a day or one cow for 40 days. And every day you're out on pasture, that's that's a bale of hay you're not buying. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how I look at it, too, is just like every day I can stretch stretch our pasture, whether it's for our dairy herd or our, our young stock of dry cows. It's yeah, a bale of hay that we don't have to make or buy. And, and I think that... You know, a lot of guys look at that, look at that hay equipment and go, well, I'll just go make my own hay. Well, there's tractor depreciation. There's your time sitting in the seat. There's wear and tear on the machinery. And there's a big diesel fuel bill at the end of the day. And I, very, very few guys, once they really drill down into their numbers, it's, it's almost always cheaper to buy it than it is to make it yourself. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's one thing that, uh, like, there's a few things that I think um, dairy farming has unique challenges when you're doing the regen, and that's one that that I hear a lot is, um, you know, some people say, well, why don't you buy all your own feed? Um, because there's lots of lots of regen beef guys who have switched to that because they're, they'd rather bring that carbon on, not have to make hay in the summer, because who, I mean... I would rather not make hay too if I could. Um, but uh, like one problem is just the need for extreme high quality feed. And you don't so always like know what you're switch- buying when you're buying it by the truckload from somebody else off the, yes. off the spot market. Yes. And so like this year we switched to this one day hay, which I heard about on John Kemp's regen egg podcast. And so basically we go out there at like nine in the morning, cut the hay. Then at two o'clock we go rake it and then we bail it in the evening and wrap it as quick as we can to get a high quality silage. And so that's what we're doing to get the best quality hay. How many, how many custom balers or 
people who sell hay are going to do it like that. Like not, not too many. Um, so why did you do that? Why did you go to that one day? Hay? Uh, well, I, so, I also so got to kind of admit that I'm a little ignorant of like, you know, I know it has to be baled then raked or uh, cut then baled and raked. But as far as the timing and, you know, where the humidity is and when you need to cut it, I've never really bothered to learn any of that. Yeah, so it's it's pretty interesting. And anyone who's listening to this that really wants a good explanation should go to uh, John Kemp's Regen Ag podcast and listen to it. I think Elvin Peachy was the guy's name. He was a Mennonite guy from, uh, or Amish guy from Pennsylvania. Um, but the idea is you're going to cut that hay first thing in the morning without crimpers, just cut it and lay it flat. And the plant is going to keep photosynthesizing as it's laying there. And as it photosynthesizes, it adds sugar just like it, just like it normally would. And it uses up the water and the leaves are what are photosynthesizing. So it sucks the water out of the stem to photosynthesize, to dry the hay down really quick. And then, the leaves are the last thing to dry and they're what's have most sugar. So you have less, less leaf, leaf loss. And, and we, you know, it, before this, I'd be very skeptical that you'd be able to dry feed down in the same day and bale it at, you know, your 45, 40, 45% moisture, which is what we want our baleage at. But it was amazing. Like two hours after cutting our first cut, I did a um, moisture sample and it was already down to 62% moisture in two hours. And, then we banned it, and I haven't done one yet. I just, you know, just use it by hand, and I would say it got down to close to that 40% moisture in eight hours. So, and the idea is that you have the highest amount of sugar then because as you go overnight, if you left it on the ground overnight, it would, um, the humidity would change. And you'd lose and a lot of the sugar. It, and you'd lose a lot of sugar, and it would start breaking down that sugar already. Like, it would start essentially especially if you have it in a windrow, it would essentially start composting on you and, and breaking down that sugar before you got it into a bale and got all the oxygen out of it. Have you, have you checked the sugar levels in that hay versus Not doing yet. it the other way? Not yet. No, we haven't got our feed samples back yet. So, but it's, um, yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see if there's a big difference or not. I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to know if you could send me a message or, or post on our Facebook group, Ranching Reboot Paddock. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, we didn't we didn't do some with the crimpers just because it was a bit of a pain to loosen them all the way off, and I didn't really want to have to loosen them off and tighten them back up to compare the two. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, like, it'll be interesting to see if that makes a difference. But, yeah, that's what I was kind of getting at is that's part of the challenge of – dairy is that uh you know you have to make that feed when it's right and even if you're like lots of big dairies are straight custom custom harvesters which is great if you're in a high dairy area where there's lots of custom guys who know what they're doing and if they don't know what they're doing you can hire someone else who does whereas where we are there's only three dairies close by um so if i one year we did grow corn and the corn was ready to go and the custom guy wasn't anywhere near us and wasn't going to come out of his way just for us. And he only makes custom corn silage for beef people mainly. And so our standard, we wanted, you know, the corn kernel processor to be on there shredding every single kernel and 
he wanted to get through our field as fast as possible so he could get on to the next guy. And so that really, you know, it turns us off like, you know, custom workers or even buying in forage partly just because it's not going to meet that standard that, that we have for our herd. But as far as heifers and dry cows, I'm definitely looking at buying in feed for them rather than producing our own because they don't need that high energy and that, that standard. Oh, I think you might be muted there, Brian. Hey, I was muted. <laughs> it was bound to happen at least once. <laughs> you're, Sean, like, you're just banging through all these questions that I had written down with just, like, ready to go. So, what's, uh, have you had any bad wrecks you want to talk about and what they've uh, taught you? Yeah, yeah. We got, um, we got a couple um, that we could talk about. Um, the weed situation was one, so we kind of already covered that of what happened. But uh, another thing that uh, we encountered um, is the last, I'd say, three years for sure, um, we were planting, planting forage, cover crop mixes, uses forage. So generally we have either barley or oats as, um, as the main one because they grow good in our area, and then you know, up to 14 species total. We'll throw a bunch of different stuff in there. Um, and the last, like, three years, we have had very poor, poor results from it. And we were trying to figure out what was going on. And we, we, have, we don't use synthetic fertilizer anymore. Um, so we were like, oh, maybe it's, you know, a nutrition problem for the fields. Um, couldn't really figure it out. And um, so... This year, or last year, we decided we're going to do fall rye instead because people have been having success with it. So we planted it a little late, but it came up, and then the spring came up, and then it just all started disappearing. And, like, you could just see the rows just start disappearing. So took a picture and put it on Facebook, and a girl who, who I know from Saskatchewan who's a, an agronomist says that looks like wireworm damage. And insect problems had not even come into our head because we have flea beetles that come and eat our eat um you know the turnips and stuff that are in the mixes but not enough that it really damages in theory if you have high enough bricks you're not supposed to have insect problems so we just hadn't really thought of that so i phoned our local agronomist he came out and sure enough we had wireworms and they just they eat eat the seed and you don't get any germination um and so we ended up buying some treated oats forage oats instead and reseeding spraying out what was left of the fall rye um reseeding forage oats forage peas uh tilladradish and crimson clover and it looks amazing and it's like and so one thing it's taught me is that we need we need more people in the regen egg business who are professionals in those fields who aren't trying to sell us something but i don't know how they're going to make a living if they're not trying to sell us something because even like this local guy from our co-op you know we call him he comes out and helps us out but it's like all we buy from him is some glyphosate every year like we don't you know we don't buy any other products like you know we don't you know we can we will probably start buying seed from them just so that we can create a, a working relationship with them but i think there's there's a need in the regen egg industry for for professionals who aren't trying to sell you something 
And so that money might have to come from funding from, you know, whoever's putting money into regen. You know, that, that's a great point, Sean, is how do we get, how do we, how do we educate more people on these regenerative practices and, and where, where's the technical assistance at and where's it going to come from? And, you know, obviously up North in Canada, you guys are good. It's going to look completely different because, you know, your ag, your government ag situation is, is completely different than ours. You sound optimistic about, you know, maybe government coming in and funding some, some regen ag educators. Um, And it's, I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around it right now, how that might work in this country because of the way things are set up. And you're absolutely right. You know, what's in it for me? What can I sell you? Yeah. And it's it's a lot more difficult to just sell advice and knowledge yeah. than it is to sell a product. Yes, for sure. So uh, that's that's a challenge. That's definitely a challenge. So, yeah, like there is, um, I'd say there's, more and more private industry who is looking to regen ag as a way to, um, you know, increase their social standing, um, stuff like that. Like I know, um, there's this, um, foundation called the Alice foundation in Canada and I'm on their producer advisor council. And, uh, I know AMW, which is a major fast food restaurant. Um, they, they like just signed a partnership with Alice putting money in and, um, and we had a meeting, they didn't say who, but another similar type group wants to and was wanted to look into Alice. And so that's kind of where I look at it. It's like, sure, we can, you know, those, they, the problem is those companies want acres. They want to say, we have a million acres under this. And it could just be a guy switching from till to no till, and they'll call it that, where it's like, if we really want to help, we need, we need educators to help these farmers go through it because – if you just switch and you don't know what you're looking for or what you're getting, you didn't really get much. And then how do we verify outcomes, right? You know, how do we verify that yeah. somebody really is regenerative and they're doing, you know, they're doing their part on their acres to improve soil quality and water quality and air quality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, as a fellow producer, I don't have any answers. I mean, I still have a lot of questions myself. Um, I still have a lot of questions myself, but I think it's better to be in front of things than to be behind them. It's, I think it's the time to get off the fence and start moving towards more regenerative practices has, has definitely come. And I hope everybody that's listening to this is starting down that road. So what uh, you mentioned, you're only one of a several a couple, just a handful of dairies in the area. So what are you mostly surrounded by? Are you mostly like commodity crops or pastures or what's, what do your neighbors do? Uh, yeah, mainly, uh, commodity crops and, uh, and then, yeah, some beef, some beef farmers and stuff around here too. Um, so it's like wheat and canola are the, are the dominant crops. And then, you know, there's people, people do grow some other things like, you know, barley and oats and some soybeans, um, some other specialty crops, but mainly wheat and canola. Do you like hockey? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who's your hockey team? Uh, the Winnipeg Jets, because they they came back to Manitoba, um, you know, 
10 years ago or something like that. So Were you a little offended by that, that he even asked that? <laughs> no, no, it's, well, I mean, small town boy in, uh, in the prairies, you either like hockey or curling as your winter sport in Canada. So I'm a hockey guy. I, I figured I like hockey, but I'm I'm more of a minor league hockey guy. There's there's no major league NHL teams within any sort of reasonable drive distance to go watch. But uh, I do love my minor league. Probably hockey. still a lot of Canadians. Probably still a lot of Canadians playing on those minor league teams. though. usually usually it's half or better. Yeah. So what uh, what motivates you right now to get out of bed? Um. Well, right now. It's a, it's a fun type of time of year for sure. Like there's always, um, you know, there's always something, we're always trying something different. Like, and I always like that. Like right now it didn't go real well cause it's been so dry, but we tried to plant like, um, this forage corn, that it's a high tillering, uh, brown midrib forage corn that, you know, was supposed to be just for grazing cows on. So I was pretty excited about that. Didn't go so well cause it's so dry, but still like, you know, doing stuff like that gets me excited and gets me gets me into things. Um, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot more interest in regen egg, and um, and it's it's I can never get tired of talking about it. So that's good too. There's there's more and more people asking me about it and and asking me how how we do things type of thing. So what are what are some new practices that you're thinking about implementing? Um, well, one thing that we've, we've thought about is, a a grazeway sort gate. Um, so right now, like I said, we let the cows out the whole group twice a day, but then if they want to, they can go out anytime to pasture. They just have to go through the robot. The problem is with cows being herd animals, when there's only one cow going out every seven minutes, they don't really want to walk out there on their own. So you can get a gate that will read the collars on their neck. And let's say she's, you know, only been milked five hours ago. She doesn't need to get milked right now. It'll just let her go outside. So then bypass the robot. Yeah. At any point of the day, you could have a large portion of your herd go outside. Only the ones that need to get milked stay inside. And that might be able to help us utilize pasture for more of our dry matter intake on a daily basis. Um, The only, like, we get good. We get good uses of pasture at nights. I think it it would help from that six a.m. to ten a.m. time period. Whereas, you know, we would like to have the cows going out and grazing then because it's not that hot. But it also is like the busiest time for the robot. So you can't really let them out too much before ten a.m. because that's when the robot's busiest when they get up and and you know come back in from a night of grazing and then they all want to get milked. So. But maybe with a grazeway gate, we'd be able to get more of our cows out in that time. So that's that's something. Um, and more and more, I want to keep trying um, different uh, different biological applicants on our on our fields. Um, I'd made some made some high fungal um, compost using the Johnson Sioux method uh, two years ago, and uh, used it a bit on our farm and and just use it as a foliar applicant with our sprayer and just did some like test strips would go out to one of our, you know, smaller paddocks and do half of it with it, leave half of it. And we actually saw some pretty interesting results and, 
and some like the one field I'd say probably made twice as much tonnage um, just from a foliar applicant of this stuff. Um, it's very time consuming to make and and uh, and hard to make. Well, not hard, but yeah, just mainly time consuming. Um, so I'd like to like to have more time to do, try stuff like that and, and give that a try and see if that can extend extend the length of our hay fields by applying a high fungal to make that fungal to bacteria ratio higher so then our alfalfa can stay in that in that field longer without it going to a, a more bacterial bacterial field. That sounds really neat. That that sound that sounds pretty cool. I forgot what I was gonna ask you next. Oh what uh you said biological applicants, is it just the just the compost that you're doing? Yeah, that's all we've tried so far. Um I you know, I'd probably need a need someone who understands it better to to go even further into that type thing. I mean, we we don't have any mi- extra milk at the time right now, but you know, we have tried milk before, just putting it on because they say it's got such high sugar that it can just really boost your soil biology just by even app, uh, applying milk on your soil. Um, I, but I, uh, yeah, right now I've just done the high fungal compost extract. Okay. Um, I had something else. Had something else, but I lost it. Um, so if we could bring back any three people alive or dead and you could have them over for dinner, who would they be and why? We haven't done this one in a while. (laughs) (laughs) Um, oh yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it would be really interesting to have either one of my grandpas over because they're both farmers. One one was a dairy farmer, the other one was a beef farmer. So either one of them would be very cool um, to have back and just hear the stories about how they grew up. Because you know, everyone everyone knows that farms were farms were a lot different back then. But a lot of regen people are moving towards those things in terms of diversifying and everything like that. Um, Nicole Masters would be someone who I would really like to be around and listen to her talk because she's just the stuff that she talks about is just crazy in terms of like um, biological applicants and and soil biology. Um, so yeah, she she'd probably be one. I mean, I don't know. I can't think of another one right off the top of my head, but um, she she's someone who you know. Uh, um, I'm hoping to someday, you know, get out to our farm because I think she would be someone who would just be able to help the farm reach another level. And I hope someday I'll get her on this podcast. Yes, yes, she would be a great guest. So, where can we find you on social media, Sean? Do you have a you active on socials at all? Uh, mainly just uh, our farm page, Clan Man Jerseys, on Facebook. Um, and so. Yeah, I, I thought about doing, um, like, one page just for, like, my soil and regen stuff and then another one for my dairy genetics, but I decided, you know what, I'm going to combine them so that the people that are here looking for, uh, people that are here looking for um, my cows, they still get their, you know, all the info we're doing on soil health. And the people that are there for soil health get to see um, your good so looking. Yeah, that, that's the best place to go is uh, Clan Man Jerseys on Facebook. And the people that come looking for soil health get a look at your pretty cows. 
Exactly. I might stop my video here just to see if I can look like I was said as unstable. So, well, is there anything you'd like to ask me or ask CK? Why you've got us here? Um. Yeah. I guess. I guess. Uh. Is there anything that after your other dairy conversations that were in your head that uh, that you guys like still that maybe I didn't answer or just like you know, something that stood out that you thought maybe dairy farmers still could push the boundaries and try to get more regenerative and, and maybe you could just ask me and see, see what I think about something like that. Well, I mean, you, you heard, you heard the first several episodes. I know you at least, um, listen to the honey Creek episode. What, what are some other ways that, that dairy producers could transition to a lower input, more regenerative system. I mean, besides grazing young stock, what, I mean, is there anything else on your mind? Um, one thing is it's probably going to be pretty controversial, but um, like for dairy farming, I think there is a size limit. And your, your last guy that you had on that was talking about, he kind of, briefly talked about that, about how if they were to keep expanding, they wouldn't be able to get as much dry matter out of their pastures. So I think if you do want to be regenerative, there is a size limit because cows can only walk so far for pasture. And so like, like let's just take um, New Zealand, for example, you know, beautiful place, tons of dairy down there and it's all grass based but they still have pollution problems in their water system. And, you know, most people would say that grass base is, you know, the best thing for pollution, but they're still, and now I shouldn't say this with absolute certainty, but I'm pretty sure lots of them are still using fertilizer because they're trying to graze too many cows on too small of acres. And they're not being able to give those acres rest periods that it needs to be, to stay healthy. So then they're using fertilizer and then when you're using fertilizer and have cows on there all the time, you have too much nutrients and it ends up in your water systems. So I think there is a size limit for if you're going to graze your cows and, and go as far regen as you can in the dairy industry, unless you get a portable milker. But those things, I haven't seen one in action. I've only seen pictures and they seem pretty cool, but they're, yeah. We'll just put it out there right now. If you are a grazing dairy with a mobile milker, call me. Get in touch. Yeah. Let's do another dairy episode some other time. Um, one thing that's on my mind is manure pits. Okay. Like, can you talk about the difference in in the decomposition processes between when the manure is in a pit and a slurry versus when it's in the pasture? Do you Can you talk about that at all? Um, so I, I don't, I don't know quite the science of it. Um, probably is good, but certainly that in a, when it's in a slurry, it is gassing off. Like you were, you were definitely losing ammonia in those situations. Um, and it's a different decomposition process, right? Yes. Yes, definitely. And, and so like there's, there's, um, like when you before you say you have a big slurry before you go to spread it you're going to agitate it a bunch to uh, 
just to break up any solid particles, make it all a nice uh, consistent liquid. And those companies that are selling selling bacteria that you can put in while you're agitating to try to get it out of that anaerobic state um, or, or whichever way it goes. I, like I said, I'm not necessarily the best person for this. But there is, I mean, the, the times when I see the best results from cows being on pasture is early spring before, before our grass really starts growing. We keep bale grazing and we'll put those animals in as tight of an area as we can keep them in without them breaking through a fence and having bale grazing in there. And just like that urine going straight onto the unfrozen ground in the spring and manure going straight, like it is crazy the growth you will get out of there and they'll have it eaten down like a carpet any grass that's there and you'd think that'd be bad and it just bounces back like crazy so like that i don't think there's anything replacing that direct contact with the soil as soon as it comes out of the cow so have what about soil test have you done uh have you done much soil testing um i did but not back yet <laughs> okay unfortunately yeah no we just sent some away for some haney and uh phospholytic acid test but uh haven't the, gotten back yet. that new plfa test that tells you fungal microbial balance yeah cool cool well i'd be be interested to hear uh hear results and you know let, let's put a pin in this and maybe we'll circle back in a year i mean i hope i, I hope we're still doing this in a year but i'd love yeah. to have you back on um to talk about some of your results and some of your test results later down the line yeah, for sure. Yeah, like I'm, I'm hoping that, um, you know, we, we can start doing a little bit more of that type of stuff. That's why we took these Haney tests. Not, you know, not so much because we're going to add add fertility in a synthetic way, but more just to to manage it and know how to manage it, and then and be able to compare those use those as benchmarks because because sometimes sometimes with regen egg, it's tough it's tough to look across the fence line or the road and see like these amazing, like, you know, artificially dark green fields beside you and think, and look at yours. It's a bit slower coming on and, and think that you're making progress, but those tests are going to be a way that to help you, you know, make sure that you are. Those, those fields of corn that are all six feet tall and perfect and at the same exact stage of growth. It's nice to look at, but <laughs> we got to understand what it takes to get it there too. Yeah. Well, Sean, it's been very, very enjoyable today, and uh, I think if you don't have anything else for us, I think we'll let you go and get back with your work. I know you dairymen are the hardest-working guys in ag. <laughs> well, it's been awesome being on. Uh, first podcast I've ever done, so after listening to them for so long, it's good to, good to finally get on one. Well, I think we'll have you back again in, in about a year to talk about some of the results you've seen and changes you've made, and I'm excited. All right. Well, thank you guys very much for having me. Yep. Thanks again for joining us today, Sean. That was a great episode today, and that should kind of wrap up Dairy for now. The idea for today's episode came from our private Facebook group, The Ranching Reboot Paddock. You should go check that out. It's a place for fans of the show to interact with each other and where you can suggest guests and topics for future episodes. If any of our podcasts has made an impact on your operation, help us feed the fire of regenerative ag and local food systems. Please share us with your network. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time on Ranching Reboot. Red Hills Rancher, out.